Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. The biggest threat to the United States is not terrorism, it's not weapons of mass destruction, it's not climate change, it's, it's our debt. And it's specifically we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China. We're seeing how fragile the world economy is. We're seeing how weaponized everybody is having to become to, to protect their own domestic affairs. Um, and key to all of this is the dollar. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, very special episode of On the Margin. I am very lucky to be joined today by Mr. Grant Williams and Luke Roman. How are you doing, gentlemen? Good. Good, good to see both of you, gents. <laughs> Likewise. Good to be here. Thanks for having us on, Michael. Okay, guys, uh, I want to get right into it here. So I really want to start um, on this topic of China. Um, Grant, there was a memorandum, uh, maybe we could start, there was a memo that came out from the US back in May of last year. Um, You wrote something called the long telegram uh, to respond. It's a pretty fantastic document. Your your take on it was great. Maybe we can start there. What was the memorandum that came out back in May? Why did you feel compelled to write about it? Well, you know, it was it was really the, the Chinese effectively saying we're at war with the U.S. I mean, it was it was pretty bold and pretty cut and dry. Um, and you know, I think what we've seen through all the Trump trade negotiations and into um, the Biden administration is kind of an escalating, ratcheting war of rhetoric originally. But the Chinese have been very, very clear about this. They they have they have come out and said we're at war with the U.S. and you know, I think what we've seen in the last two years through the pandemic is just how fragile the Western economy is and the Western financial system is. Um, and so clearly when we see recent moves like the, the port in Harbin being shut uh, and the damage that has done to supply chains in the West, you, you, can, you can talk about it in many different ways, but there's a lot of people saying that this is China kind of just prodding and poking and testing um, the West to see how those supply chains hold up, and obviously they're lacking dramatically. Um, so I, I think what we have here is is kind of a, a war of sorts between the two countries, but they're being fought on different levels and with different intensities. Um, now, where where they converge ultimately is yet to be decided. Hopefully, um, the cooler heads and the more kind of relaxed attitude of the West will prevail. But I certainly wouldn't bet on that because I think the, the 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 kind of the tensions in China domestically are ratcheting up as well particularly if we get if we get onto the subject of inflation later on that that's always been China's Achilles heel food food price inflation so the the world has kind of created a very fragile ecosystem um, in logistic terms through outsourcing and globalization we've created a very fragile system by burdening it with a ridiculous amount of debt and now we have the two main protagonists in that system at odds with each other. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that none of that is good for the immediate future. And we have to kind of figure out how it's going to play out and, and where the where the stresses are and where the opportunities might be. Yeah. I think, uh, Luke, you called it something. Uh, actually, there was an interview that the two of you did about a year ago with Preston Pish, uh, and you called it kind of the, this great competition, right? So when you look at this budding conflict between these two empires, what are we talking about here? Is this an extension of trade war, kind of an economic competition? Is this a cold war that we're entering in, something like uh, the Ru- U.S. and the Russia did back in the 60s? Uh, or is this a full-scale, you know, kinetic conflict? Like, how do you see the, the coming conflict or maybe the stages of it? 
you know, it's interesting. There was a there was a document put out called the Longer Telegram by an anonymous former Western government official. And one of the things they said in that document was that the Chinese in 2002 identified a 20-year window of opportunity that they thought they had while the West, while the United States in particular, was distracted by what was going on in the Middle East uh, and the adventure we decided to go on for 20 years over there. And as it turns out, they were exactly right. And so while we were distracted in the Middle East, um, if you recall, Right before we went in there, in December of 01, uh, China ascended to the WTO as a, I think, most favored nation. Um, the United States immediately lost a significant amount of manufacturing, manufacturing jobs over the next three to five years. And I think at that point in time, uh, the dogma, uh, the economic dogma and, and the zeitgeist of the era was free trade is good and we don't want these manufacturing jobs, we don't need them, and ultimately it's better for us to have uh, the cheaper consumer goods. And so this is a positive, and China is this emerging market, non-threatening nation, and by trading with them, we will bring them along and liberalize them, and, and sort of all of these um, Western ideals we imprinted on, on how we thought the situation would go. Um, and. Fast forward 20 years, and what we now find, is, as, as Rush Doshi in the book The Long Game pointed out, uh, the United States has never had in, in its history an adversary or group of adversaries who totaled 60% uh, or more of U.S. GDP. So World War I, the Axis powers never, you know, the, great, the Axis powers never uh, amounted to 60% of U.S. GDP. World War II, the Axis powers' economies never amounted to 60% of U.S. GDP. USSR, in the height of the Cold War, same thing. China reached that level in 2014. And so I think sometime in the 2013-2014 timeframe, uh, maybe even earlier, arguably, when you had people like Chairman of uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Michael Mullen, in 2011, saying the biggest threat to the United States is not terrorism, it's not weapons of mass destruction, it's not climate change, it's, it's our debt. And it's specifically we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China, and this isn't sustainable. I think the Chinese, going back 20 years, saw a window of opportunity where I think they have a, what I would call at the policy level, a much greater appreciation of history than Americans do. Uh, and I think they did not uh, look back on what they call their century of humiliation very fondly and, and saw a chance to bring back a formerly great power, a window of opportunity, and went about doing so very uh, methodically. Uh, I think for the first part of that, most uh, America, it wasn't even a conflict. We were by far the superior power. We saw the, an opportunity to liberalize them, etc. I think in the second half of that period, you started to see U.S. military and, and, and intelligence officials begin to recognize that, hey, maybe there's a threat here. Uh, but still, civilian policymakers, corporate America, the banking system wanted to hear nothing of it. And I think post-COVID, you now have this situation where there's almost kind of a civil conflict within the United States around this. In other words, I, I think overall there's an, a recognition that there is a tension and a, a competition. Um, and, and to Grant's point, it's multi-level. So certain areas it's friendly, certain areas it's very, very uh, adversarial. Uh, but even within the United States, there I would say it's still half and half where 
there's still a lot of people in America getting rich because of China that don't want us to do anything about China. And, uh, you know, you need to look for no further than the reaction of LeBron James around Hong Kong, uh, for example. Um, you know, he was very vocal on Black Lives Matter. You said anything about Hong Kong, he, he slapped that down very fast. And that's the type of dynamic um, that I think is really has been kicked off. And, and I would say the numbers on the side saying, hey, we need to change, the, 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 we need to redefine the relationship with China. The numbers with sort of that house within the United States grew meaningfully post-COVID. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's multi-level and, it's, and it's, it's, it's dynamic and moving, but um, that, that's how I would define it. In terms of your framework for looking at the relationship today, um, there's like a whole spectrum, right? So we're entering some sort of competition uh, with China, right? There's one way of looking at it is like, this is the Thucydides trap, right? There's an empire kind of on the waning side of things and one on the rise and conflict is going to arise there. Uh, Brent, or uh, Luke, you were at our, our event in uh, Bretton Woods. Um, there was some more serious rhetoric than that, right? And some folks tend to actually single out uh, the Chinese Communist Party as being a kind of a malignant actor, actually, on the global stage. Uh, and actually, U.S. companies that are funding or interacting with uh, the Chinese market, it, you almost have an ethical or moral obligation not to do that. So when you kind of look at the intermingling interest in between the U.S. and China, where do both of you shake out? You know, do you think that the U.S. US companies shouldn't be interacting in the Chinese market? Should we not be trying to get funding from China out of some moral or, you know, nationwide interest? Or where do you kind of shake out on, on that whole issue? You know, she is halfway through a purge. It's, it started off as a, as a corruption and, you know, and bribery crackdown. There's, uh, there's several high-profile businessmen gone to jail. There's uh, regulators have been executed. Uh, you know, uh, social media stars have been vanished. There, is, there are things going on in China that suggest that uh, he is absolutely strengthening his grip on, uh, on the country ahead of, um, ahead of the next party congress. Um, meanwhile, in the U.S., obviously, the, the problems there are wholly different. You've got, you've got a, 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 an economy that is you know, quote-unquote booming, if you want to listen to people, but I, I think any of us that, that are immersed in that world know that that's absolutely not the, the way things are. You've got a population wholly dependent upon stimulus checks, and you've got a, a country whose finances finances don't allow it to continue that kind of largesse to the entire population without serious ramifications. Now, can they do they have the printing press and the ability to print that money? Yes, but at some point... That's going to come home to roost. So each of these two countries has domestic problems um, which require uh, careful management. And any time you get any situation like this, you know, it never hurts to have a common enemy, particularly if it's an outside overseas enemy that you know who look different to us and think differently to us and you know salute a different flag to us. So unfortunately, we have two leaders grappling. Um, with problematic domestic situations, and we have two countries that, who make for perfect uh, outlets for any kind of uh, stress you want to you, you, you kind of generate at home and, and push out into the world. So it's, it's a very fragile time. I mean, in America, um, th there's been a lot of talk about the ethical, uh, ethical approach to, to taking capital from China, to, uh, from allowing companies to raise money on the New York Stock Exchange, when you look at what's happened to companies in China um, in the other direction, there are, there are two different games being played, and, and capitalism is many things. But as, as Luke quite rightly pointed out, there are a lot of people getting very, very rich off of doing business in and with the Chinese, and they are not 
unfortunately about to give that kind of uh, kind of position up without a fight. I mean, you only have to look at what's happened with Kaplan and Rosengren at the Fed. You know, you've got billionaires front running the market to make a few million bucks. So capitalism is maybe alive, but it, it's not well. And it hasn't been for some time now because of uh, the way that the, the kind of this this old um, line about uh, capitalism without bankruptcy is, is like Catholicism without hell. And it's so true. And because we've kind of got rid of the idea of bankruptcies, uh, everything's on life support, it's emboldened people. Um, and, you know, w- w- the, the things like the, the two Fed governors trading their PAs while they're setting monetary policy is the kind of story that I'm sure people hope gets buried very, very fast. Because if you think about that um, as a signal of how deep the rot is in in Western um, uh, financial circles, financial markets, it's it's a very, very savage indictment on, on how this system uh, and where the system has gone to. Um, you look at the, the impunity with which um, certain charismatic CEOs uh, make statements that are totally outlandish and total nonsense with no form of punishment. They can commit securities fraud uh, with abandon and, and not be punished for it apart from a slap on the wrist. You know, there is, a, there is a huge moral decline here in financial markets in the West, and that goes absolutely against any idea that you will persuade people to do the moral thing and refuse to do business with the Chinese or refuse to accept funding of the Chinese or refuse to make money by uh, listing the Chinese companies in the US. This kind of stuff has to come from the top. And if you if you compare that to China, where they executed one of the regulators um, for for certain misdeeds, you, you, know, you see the difference between the two. And, and when we talk about capitalism with Chinese characteristics, um, that used to go in one direction. And one could almost say now it goes in the other direction. So I, I think I think the capitalist system is is very fragile right now, simply because it's refused. Uh, it, it's it's stopped being a true capitalist system with the downsides uh, inherent in it for, for some time now. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting because I think, you, you you know, in China, if you talk about the wrong things, you get literally disappeared. Right. Uh, as we've seen in America, if you talk about the wrong things, you get uh, career disappeared, you get financially disappeared. Um, oh, yeah. But now, look, you do disappear technically. Right. But you can get canceled for this kind of stuff. Right. And right. It's different, but it's the same. Yeah, it's 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 a you know it's a matter of degrees. I would argue of you're not dead, uh, but you're <laughs> but you're you know you're broke and you are you know, discredited or you're an extremist or, um, you know, when you talk about, you know, uh, the ongoing issues in Xinjiang, um, you know, yes, those things are awful. And there's, I don't know how to equate that with what we just saw transpire in the Middle East over the last 20 years, where we went to war on a lie, what was absolutely a lie. And cost at least as many lives um, as are said to have been, uh, that have been lost or, or, or threatened or pris- imprisoned over there. So the challenge in all this is, is to, to make, uh, like you said, Grant, is, is after you've spent the last 20 years eroding away at your own moral base, then to turn around and ask your populace to follow some sort of moral imperative uh, to fight some group of others is 
it's a big ask. And then while you continue, especially when you're continuing to undermine your own moral imperative in ways like we just talked about with yeah. with Kaplan and Rosengren, uh, et cetera, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the thought process out here in flyover country is people are too busy trying to make ends meet to worry about we need to fight China. You know, we out here we were saying, hey, this sending all our jobs to China is a bad idea. People were saying that 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, I said this at Bretton Woods is I think part of the reason the Beltway in particular, but the coasts and Wall Street have all of a sudden, you know, in the last three to five years said, oh, my gosh, China, China's bad. China's bad. China's bad. Where were these people 15 years ago? Because that's what people were saying in the Midwest 15 years ago in the Rust Belt. And we were effectively told, shut up and, you know, go take your $12 an hour job with no benefits and, you know, take a subprime mortgage as a consolation prize. Um, and people, I think what's happening, why we're seeing part of what's driving this policy maker, you know, sort of, you know, beltway and coastal fear slash response to China, redefinition of China as an adversary, is I think these people are finally realizing China might actually win. I think 15 years ago, when they were winning in the Rust Belt, and that's what I said at Bretton Woods, I, said, I can tell you China can win because I've watched it happen with my own eyes. In the Rust Belt, they already won. They won 10 years ago. And I think it's this recognition, this awakening, and maybe it coincided with that moment where China surpassed the 60% of US GDP, unlike any other adversary in history, where these people said, oh my gosh, but, uh, we, we, China's an adversary now. This, this was all fun and games while, you know, they were getting hurt, but now, now they're going to take my job. Now they're going to take capital markets from me. Now they're going to set trade policy with the with the Arabs, not me. This is unacceptable. So I, I think there's a very big dose of cynicism, I guess, about sort of the rallying cry of some sort of moral imperative about China now, 15 to 20 years after. I mean, look, they knocked down one of our spy planes in April of 2001 and held our guys hostage and stripped the plane clean by all accounts. I mean, there's, it's the old frog and, and, and scorpion uh, story, right? Where you know, frog swims across and the scorpion asks for a ride and frog says, well, why should I give you a ride? Because, you know, you, if you sting me, you know, then I'll die. And the scorpion said, well, I would never do that. We'll both drown. And frog says, well, I guess that's right. And they get about halfway across the stream, and the scorpion stings a frog. And as they're both drowning, he goes, why'd you do that? He goes, I'm a scorpion. That's what I do. So, you know, there's sort of a, a level of cynicism, uh, maybe even schadenfreude, uh, when it comes to talk of, you know, from policymakers about this sort of moral imperative now. And there's a great interview with a guy named Sir James Goldsmith that happened, like, back in the 90s. And they're talking about globalization. And he's making this case that, man, like, 20, 30 years later, he was just dead right. And the response and the mocking and the condescension and the moral arguments that were used against him, you, everyone should just go and watch this interview. I think it's really emblematic. So, you know, Michael, there's, there's, a, there's a very similar speech that Margaret Thatcher made, her last speech to the House of Commons, you know, before, before she left office. Um, same thing, talking about the European project. And if you, if you listen to that speech, again, you'll see she called just about everything that happened with the European project. But again, um, the derision and the ridicule by the, the, the establishment that wanted to be part of Europe. This is, this is the, the, one of the oldest tales in the world, right? The, the people who can sit down and think these things through. And, and the sad thing is, you know, what Goldsmith said, um, it, 
it, it's not like wildly improbable. It's if you sit down and think about what he says, it makes perfect rational sense that that right. is one of the ways this could go. But as was what Thatcher said. But unfortunately, uh, you know, even back then, we live in this world where there is a narrative, um, there is a mainstream narrative, and it's important to to get that narrative backed by the public conscious. To what extent is this competition between the U.S. and China a battling of two um, ideologies uh, that don't necessarily go together. Like my grandpa, he was a Marine. He fought in World War II. He used to tell me about like the domino effect, right, which we used to be very concerned about uh, communism kind of spreading from country to country. And then now it's like, oh, maybe that, maybe that wasn't, isn't necessarily the case. Maybe it didn't work like that. But it seems like that's starting to kind of come back, and there's this coalition forming, right, between kind of Russia and China, and they're ideologically united, and the U.S. over here. To what extent are we watching just a battle of ideologies play out? I mean, how, how important is that to understanding the conflict? I think there are deep, probably uncrossable ideology, ideological differences between, say, the U.S. and China. Uh, but I think at, at a very primal level, some of what we're watching is, is China knows that under this current currency system, they will have a currency crisis and their economy will collapse and their people will starve if they have to keep buying oil only in dollars. When, you know, you can find uh, any, really, any number of interviews that Kyle Bass has offered over the last two to three years. He's been on the news waves highlighting, look, China needs more and more oil to keep growing their economy. They have to keep growing their economy or else they have social unrest. They need more and more oil to grow their economy. That oil is priced in dollars. They only have so many dollars in reserves. Once they run out of dollar reserves, then they either have to stop buying as much oil, in which case their economy slows, they have social unrest, they can't pay their debt, their economy collapses, or they devalue their currency, they have hyper, higher hyperinflation of oil and food, which also is one of their key risks. And so he's been on the media waves for the last three to five years effectively talking about weaponizing oil through the dollar, weaponizing the dollar through oil, however you want to phrase it, and that's the problem. And so China needs to get away from, uh, they're, they're never going to be able to produce enough oil. That's not an option. So they've gone around the world buying up oil supplies, etc. cetera. Um, they're never going to be able to produce enough oil for what, they, for what they need. So they need to import it. But if they need to import it, then uh, to avoid this inevitable currency crisis and economic collapse, they have to be able to buy oil in their own currency, a currency they can print. Uh, and that's why, ultimately, for China, it's a matter of national security to get away from this, you know, from the dollar, the, the dollar monopoly on oil. And the Russians know the same thing. And so it's almost like this, you know, um, it, it's like it, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, because mm -hmm. obviously the Russians and the Chinese have not had uh, a long, you know, throughout history, they've not tended to be natural allies. Uh, but ultimately you sort of have to face, face your challenges in order. And number one challenge for both of them is the dollar system as it's structured. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great meme out there. You know, you know, of course Iran is threatening us. Look how close they put their country to all our military bases, right? And they show all of the military bases surrounding Iran, surrounding China, surrounding Russia. And so if you put your, if you look at it from both sides, I really think what we're watching is sort of this competition for resources, competition for the structure of the system, who gets a say for the system, 
there are different and you know, in, uh, uh, constituencies within each country regarding who likes the system, who doesn't like the system. To my earlier point about there's a lot of people in America getting rich uh, with, with doing business with China, uh, and others being hurt by it. Uh, so you have internal struggles, uh, you know, uh, concurrent with this. But I, I don't know that it's a domino theory as much as it is just real politic around resources. Russia's Russia's the world's biggest energy exporter, and they're willing to sell oil to China. In Chinese currency, and that is something no other American adversaries ever had. Uh, so I think it's much more. I think there's ideological differences, but I think there's a lot of it is driven by much more nearer-term, real politic and, and pragmatic drivers that are designed out of uh, you know, uh, weaknesses, right? Trying to trying to defend weaknesses that China has or that Russia has, rather than starting from a point of we're going to go get the Americans. I think it's more, oh gosh, we need to make sure we prevent this from happening. What's the best way to prevent this from happening? It's to partner with Russia. Yeah. There was a pretty amazing interview that Stan Druckenmiller gave on CNBC a couple months back. I don't know if you guys caught this, but you know, he went on and he kind of described why he thought that the U.S. might lose uh, reserve currency status within the next 15 years. Um, and you hear a lot of that kind of stuff on Twitter, but to hear it from Stan Druckenmiller just kind of hits a little bit different. Um, Grant, what are your thoughts generally on the construction of the monetary system today? Obviously, we're seeing unprecedented things happen in terms of easing and money printing globally. Does this seem sustainable to you? Do you think that we're going to have a monetary system with the dollar at the center come 10 or 15 years from now? What are your thoughts about how this whole system is structured? Well, Michael, I think, I think the, the timing is always the tricky thing. You know, the, these fiat currency systems fail always. That's just the way they, they reach the end of their natural life because exactly what's happened with this one happens with all of them. They get abused and the, and the, the hegemon and the, the country with reserve currency has to print a whole bunch of money, has to run deficits. Um, and ultimately, these things topple over under their own weight. You know, we, we've seen this before um, with just about every system that happened. You know, people forget that before um, the US dollar, the British pound was, was, the, was the global reserve currency. And that was kind of struggling and a little bit weak. And in the Suez crisis, basically put a, a fork in it. Um, and America played their hand very, very well. And, and that was it. That was the end of the game for the, for the British pound. And the, the, the thing that people should understand is just how quickly it happens. Once, once it reaches that terminal phase and once um, it, can, it, it, it takes too much to defend the system than it does to topple it over, the end will happen fairly quickly. The Berlin Wall coming down happened like that. Now, if you look back at it and you look back through Gorbachev and you look back at Glasnost and Perestroika and you look, you can see how it happened. But at the time, the, the reporting, the coverage of the Berlin Wall coming down was, oh, my God, the Berlin Wall's coming down. And, and you know, communism fell over overnight. When you look back at these things, the speed with which they actually unravel at, to, to the extent that everybody understands what's going on is faster than you can even comprehend. And the same thing is likely to happen to the dollar. So trying to put a, a time on this is, I mean, it's kind of futile, frankly, until you can until you can see the end in sight, and then it'll happen very fast. But if, I think the thing that's happened over the last five, six years, and, and nobody's frankly written or talked about this better than Luke. I think Luke's been absolutely all over this, and, and, and brilliantly so, I have to say, Luke. Um, it, it, it's entertaining these possibilities, it's it's refusing to just to to just dispel this idea that the U.S. dollar will lose its reserve currency status. People will just say, "Oh, well, that's ridiculous," which is such a dangerous attitude to have. You know, 
it will happen. The question is, is it a problem you have to think about today? And I think you have to think about it more today than you did yesterday. And you'll have to think about it more tomorrow than you do today because time is ticking. We're seeing how fragile the world economy is. We're seeing how weaponized everybody is having to become to, to protect their own domestic affairs. Um, and key to all of this is the dollar. And I think Luke has been all over this idea about the, 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 the ability of these countries to, to pay for oil in their own currencies, how crucial that is. And, and a lot of people don't quite understand what, what happens if oil can be paid for in euros or can be paid for in yuan. You know, suddenly there is a need to hold those currencies in reserves for every importing, oil importing country in the world at the expense of the dollar. So this is a, this is a, a hugely important game that's being played. Um, and the US has been on the front foot for a long time, but to assume it will be powerful enough to repel these forces forever, I, I think is a very, very foolish attitude to take. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody, customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned. I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Let's start to kind of 
speculate a little bit, pull at that thread of what could it be? What's the catalyst that might, uh, you know, cause, <laughs> cause things to unwind? And I was telling you guys before uh, we got on this interview, uh, just because I'm a huge nerd and this is the kind of things I like to do, I've been going back. You can look at Fed Minutes going all the way back to like the 1900s. And, uh, and I was reading green books from uh, the late 1960s, early 1970s. And I got, you know, that was when inflation started to finally pick up. And I got to tell you, it is eerie. It is eerie reading the way that they talked about it back then. Uh, yeah, prices are, are going up, but we expect them to moderate uh, in Q3 of this year. Oh, yes, uh, you know, CPI is up, but, you know, if you excluded this one item, uh, it would be – I mean, it's nuts. I feel like I'm, I'm seeing it, and I also – I feel like I'm experiencing it in my life. Like, shit is more expensive for me than it used to be. So what's your thought, guys? Like, I, I, I feel like I'm finally coming around to the idea that I'm just living through inflation, and I just don't think they're going to admit it for a little while. I think you've got to use sort of a blend of, of things. I think a lot of what you see in the 60s, or late 60s, early 70s, I think are are apropos in a way, right? Because really what blew up the budget was the Vietnam War, right? So we have some, an element of a war, uh, an ill-advised war blowing up the budget to some large extent here again. Uh, so that's similar. But then I also think you need to bring in other time periods to adjust for the reality. So in, in the 70s, you said the GDP was 25, 30%, right? So something I, I, I find is wildly underappreciated still is in the 70s, they could let rates be the release valve. Yes, the rates may have been negative on a real basis. The rates were following inflation. And so you were the reason gold rose while rates rose in the 70s was because they weren't rates were not moving as fast as inflation right real rates stayed negative the whole time we're now at 125 130% at the gdp we are in no position to allow rates to be the release valve there's only one possible release valve which is the currency which speaks to your point grant and i think it might kind of tie into a potential trigger is when this thing goes the trigger might just be the fed saying yeah we're going to inflate because now the debt amounts are so big, the derivative amounts are so big, um, you have to adjust for supply chains, right? So back then, uh, we were still a manufacturing nation. We, we were making our own stuff. We, were, we were, had manufacturing wages, right? So there, were, they were, there, there was a, a, much, a much greater, um, I think, ability as an economy to absorb that type of inflation and still sort of retain the ability to function than we do now where our supply chains are 3,000, 5,000, 7,000 miles away and we're highly financialized where we're, we're a finance society and can't afford, you know, what happens when you start having negative real rates go negative 5, negative 10, negative 15, negative 20%? What is a bank going to make a mortgage loan when, when they know real rates are running negative 20? Um, experience in Latin America would suggest no, they won't. And that, then what do you do? Does the Fed do it? So it could all feed on itself really fast. And so I think you need to overlay that to the, you know, sort of make that adjustment of the debt levels to the 70s example. I think you need to go back to uh, post-World War II where we we're at 110% and we, you know, we sent real rates to negative 15% when the Fed capped yields. And I think that's instructive. But here, too, the U.S. was the world's only standing superpower, only functioning industrial base, had all the gold, had a, we were the world's biggest oil producer. So it's, we were in a much better position. Uh, I think you have to go overseas. And I think so many investors just they sort of you know have the flag at the masthead of of the of the sheet of the term sheet and say well we're america and you know you know hashtag murica or yeah this there's nothing like this could ever happen but when you sort of cross off the 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 flag on the term sheet and you go to something uh, grant and i talked about earlier this year you know germany's position post-world war ii 
or excuse me, post-World War I, when you look at this massive inflation-adjusting reparation, which for them were war reparations owed in gold, and for America are entitlements owed in, you know, either uh, healthcare goods and services, which are a foreign currency the Fed cannot print, and which will rise in price as we print more to pay them, or even Social Security, where I just saw last week that right now the, the cost of living adjustment for Social Security for 2022 is forecast at 6%, while the 10 years at 1.4. And so you can see at that, you know, so I think you need to overlay that on there. And that's not to say I think we're going to hyperinflate, or, um, uh, but I do think this inflation could be much more vicious much more quickly than what we saw in the 70s or in the 40s and 50s um, for those reasons. So I think you have to kind of take, we're, we're, we're in unprecedented territory. We've never had the, the entitlements we've had. We've never had uh, the debt we've had. All these things have sort of never happened in human history. But there are lots of different periods of time where a little bit of each period rhymes. And you kind of got to sort of strip a little bit off of that and put it, you know, piece from here. And you put it together and you end up with sort of, you know, a, something with a lion's head and eagle's wings and, you know, a, a serpent's tail or, so, you know, some sort of animal that we don't know what it is. But you can kind of get a sense that it's that it's might be unpleasant. Yeah. I think putting all putting this together, what makes me so uneasy about all this and Maybe I'll tell this to you and you'll make me feel better or you'll confirm, <laughs> confirm my fears here. But when you look at transition points in history, uh, you know, periods of great peace usually have one hegemon, right? That's so large that they're unchallenged, right? And that could be the Pax Romana, the Pax Britannia, the Pax Americana, whatever. Maybe it looks like we're edging towards the end of the Pax Americana. Um, and you have this rising power in the form of China. At the same time that you have that rising power, you're dealing with domestic disturbances, right? And we haven't really talked about wealth inequality. And, and honestly, the, the resignation of both of these Fed governors might go down as kind of this, I don't know, moment in time that people remember, because it really is symptomatic, emblematic for that moral decay, uh, Grant, that you, that you were talking about. And I guess what I worry about is, it seems like all these things are coming to a head at the same time. Is that just me? <laughs> Am I the only one that feels like that? Is there... Am I alone in my sense of kind of existential like, well, doom here? It, it depends, Michael. Do, do you want us to make you feel better? or, or I mean, what do you want? I honest, Grant, I honestly don't know. It really depends on look, what comes I, out of your mouth. I, 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 think, I think that that creeping sensation you've got is absolutely right. I think, again, and, and this is end of empire stuff, right? This is when the, the various cracks in the foundations of the empire become too widespread to be able to just plaster up one part of it and, and hold the thing together. Um, and look, and, the, and these these things always sound apocalyptic when you when you talk about them. And people go, "Oh my God, this is doom mongering." But look, the, the, the British Empire crumbled and fell, and their time as reserve currency uh, ended. But last I visited, England was there. You can still get a pint of beer in the pub and watch the football on Saturday. So, yeah, it's 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 not apocalyptic. It's just a change in in the world, and that can be very discomforting for people who are used to a given environment and, and, a, and a given set of actors who they believe they know where to place them all in the range of black hat to white hat and we know who the good guys are we know who the bad guys are and and it, it's 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 very uncomfortable for people to live through those times and fortunately they only happen every 50 odd years so it's it's really a kind of every other generation that really has to live through them we this one has been extended um by the fact that kind of everybody's been on the same game um but you know, when you talk about tipping points, I think this um, you know, this inflation thing is 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 way more dangerous 
than than people make it out to be. Given what you mentioned, uh, Michael, quite rightly about the wealth inequality, you know, if you look at um, look at wage increases, right? They haven't really happened for almost forty years. There haven't been any meaningful wage increase cycles as the price of everything has gone up. You know, you look at look at a, a chart of the CPI, not the change, but the actual CPI, and it's a forty five degree line. It just keeps going higher and higher and higher. The cost of everything keeps going up. Um, and you know, recently I, I, I had a conversation with Steph Pombo with Sam Zell, and he said, you know, beautifully simply, he said, you know, in, inflation is two things, and one of them is a mindset, and that's the problem, because mindsets amongst a, a, a panicky populace are not things you can easily get under control. You know, it, it, once that bug gets in people's heads, that's when the shelves get emptied of toilet paper and that's when you can't buy a generator and that's when you know you can't buy beer because it's all been stockpiled um and so when you look at the supply chain issues we're having in the teeth of uh, an inflationary pulse that that is lasting longer and going harder than anyone supposedly educated at the federal reserve thought it would and assured us it would when you when you when you're assured something time after time and it turns out not to be true there comes a point in time where you go you know what they know what they're talking about and that mindset can switch very quickly and once it does we have a very fragile society we have a lot of people um you know struggling to keep their heads above water with rising prices uh we've had a taste of that with the pandemic last year we saw just how quickly shelves got emptied and supermarkets uh, didn't have food in them um, and another conversation I had a little while ago with Russell Napier you know he made the great point talking about uh, that the point Luke just made there about capping the yield curve and 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 uh, the fact that it worked after World War II but the part Russell pointed out that no one ever mentions is that alongside the capped yield curve they had rationing they had price controls and most importantly perhaps they had capital controls so we are very likely to go into a world of capital controls. And again, just like the falling of something like the Berlin Wall, capital controls aren't telegraphed, right? I mean, things will close on a Friday and capital controls will be in place as of the time Joe Biden makes an announcement from the Oval Office or whatever it may be. So I think people need to understand that as fragile as individual economies are and as fragile as the global financial system is, it really could be anything that tips this over. The, the important thing I think to understand is, is whatever tips it, it will happen fast. And you need to at least think through, what do I need to do if I feel like there is an increasing likelihood that some of these outcomes we're talking about happen? Because if you, if you assume they won't, you have no chance. If you assume they will and have your timing wrong, at least you'll know to react faster than all the people that thought it was impossible. But if you think it's possible, you ascribe a likelihood to it and you make some plans about what to do with your, your capital and what to, how to kind of best get yourself further up the tree for when people start grabbing at the low-hanging fruit, um, you at least you give yourself a fighting chance. So that's really all it is. Have, have the courage to think through extreme outcomes and um you know read everything luke's written about this stuff because he's been writing about this stuff for a long time and he does so in a way that makes it easy to understand and and really lays out i think just how potentially problematic some of these outcomes are going to be i love the way you phrase that grant allow yourself to um 
believe in extreme possibilities, right? And it does certainly seem yeah. like the the band of outcomes is being narrowed. So, you know, how do you see this all playing out over the course of the next, I don't know, couple of years? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I've never seen, I've been doing this 25 years, I've never seen the amount of crosswinds that we're seeing now. And what's fascinating is every aspect where there's, where there's you're reaching an extreme, you're reaching long levels of extremes, right? So we've gone through 80 years of globalization, and that's reversing. And we've gone through 30 years of this U.S.-China relationship, and that's reversing. And we've gone through 40 years of a debt cycle and interest rates, and that's reversing. And, and, and you just go on and on. And each of these are, you know, uh, we've gone through 70 years of a demographic cycle, and that's, that's sort of going upside down in terms of going cash flow negative on entitlements. And so you've got all of these things that are all moving sort of they've all reached extremes and if any one of them snaps i think they all kind of start to snap in sort of short order and i think that's sort of a one one of two key takeaways i think it's um once it happens once something triggers it you know again i, I think inflation is probably could very well be the trigger it's interesting if we go back to august 2019 uh former fed vice chair stan fisher uh, former Swiss National Bank Philip Hildebrand and uh, uh, former Bank of Canada Governor Jean Boivin wrote a white paper for the BlackRock Institute, uh, you know, dealing with the next downturn. And it was basically laying out the game plan for in the next downturn, here's what we're going to have to do. We're out of, the central banks are out of ammo on their own. They're going to have to pair with the fiscal authorities. And so the fiscal authorities are going to have to spend. And then the central banks will have to cap rates to make sure the offsetting, there's no offsetting rise in interest rates that hurts the, the fiscal stimulus. And it's incredible how few people on Wall Street have read this piece. Uh, I've been talking about it for a lot. I know Grant's been talking about it as well. Um, but there's something in there that, that, again, former Fed Vice Chair Stan Fisher, just to frame it up for the audience, is uh, one, of, one of my best relationships on the street calls him the godfather. Right? He was, he was Draghi's uh, tutor or mentor. He was Bernanke's mentor. He's, he is the man. Right? And, and, oh, by the way, he also did one of the seminal diagnoses of the Israeli hyperinflation in the early 80s. So he knows, <laughs> he's, he's lived through this, he's diagnosed how these monetary reforms, uh, as it was called in, in Israel. And so what he said in this paper, what they said in this paper is really incredible, is after they lay out, hey, the fiscal needs to spend a lot, the central banks need to monetize it and cap rates, is... This helicopter money, this is just handing out money to people in central bank, you know, the central bank handing out money to people through the fiscal authorities is all it is. We know will generate inflation. It will absolutely generate inflation. We are sure we can do that. And here we are today and we see it's absolutely worked. What's incredible is, is the godfather, Stan Fisher, goes on to say, the challenge is that there are no instances of history of getting the genie back in the bottle his words, not mine, or fine-tuning this program for just uh, the right amount of inflation. And I think we're now seeing that, but markets don't get that yet. They don't, they, they've not read this. They, they don't understand. And then you go back to this context of there is no ability for the Fed to tighten. They can't. And the reason they can't is because if you look at U.S. Treasury spending, plus U.S. entitlement pay goes, it's still over 100% of tax receipts. So the U.S.'s real interest expense is still more than 100% of tax receipts with tax receipts at all-time highs with bubbles yeah. in every friggin' market. So 
if they tighten, they're going to decline. They're going to lead tax receipts to decline, and then unless the Fed prints the difference, the U.S. will default on entitlements or treasuries, and and that's that's where we are. And markets don't understand this yet, but I think they're probably within a few months of understanding it. And when they do, it's the bond market is going to go. Oh my God, the only choice the Fed has is to QE more into this accelerating inflation because they have to contain rates. And when you look at sort of these, the great hyper, and I don't want to call it hyperinflation, they have great high inflations in history, they've generally all had one thing in common, which is a sovereign that can print money trying to keep interest rates at a politically and economically expedient level. And the nice thing is, is these things, this thing could be over in six months. I mean, you could send inflation to, you know, 50, 100% for a couple of, for a couple of quarters, and the U.S. debt to GDP will be... 70%. The Fed can normalize rates. And it'll be just like that. And people say, oh, that's the catastrophe. You know, you go to Argentina, six months before rates were at 70% in Argentina to match the 70% inflation, Argentinian rates were trading below this uh, similar tenor, tenure rates uh, or treasury rates in, in the U.S. So I don't think U.S. rates are going to 70, but I think U.S. real rates could go to negative 20, you know, negative 15, negative 20% for a span of several quarters in a row as a means of the U.S. being able to get rid of its debt load and then normalize interest rates after that's happened. So I think these crosswinds, I don't know which of these crosswinds could touch it off. It could be geopolitical, it could be supply chain, it could be military, it could be financial. There's a whole bunch of things all moving around at once. You know, if China, if, if Evergrande has some sort of contagion, yeah, maybe someone else could sort of go over the cliff first. But at the end of the day, we're all tied to each other around the waist with six feet of rope. So if if China goes over first, you know, we're going to go over, the Europeans will go over. It doesn't really matter. It's just if anything goes wrong anywhere, everything is stretched so extreme, um, I think things will develop rather rapidly, like what Grant and, and was talking and you guys were talking about before. Yeah. Um, let's just, you know, in kind of wrapping up here, let's just talk about how does that translate into markets, right? I mean, even just that phrase, uh, Luke, just having sustained negative real rates of 10 or 20 percent, I mean, that is extreme financial oppression, right? So I guess where my mind immediately goes is hard assets, right? And you already are, like, just look at the housing market in the U.S. It's pretty uh, unbelievable. Um, I mean, Grant, I know you're also a big fan of, of gold in general. I mean, how, how do you think, like, assuming Luke's scenario uh, that he just laid out there is true, how does this translate into kind of markets and, and what assets do you, does it sort of make you well, think I think, no, I think I think you're right. I think, I think it's, it, if it transpires that way, it's the end of the era of financial assets and it's a return to an era of hard assets. Um, and the fact that, as Luke pointed out, we're seeing this kind of competitive land grab for commodities and resources, that's another tailwind for that trade. Um, and look, valuations are at levels which, even with the inflation we're having now, don't make sense. But as, as again, as Luke said, the market hasn't really seemed to figure that out. And if you look at some of the inflation swap prices, you'll see that the market is still pricing inflation to be transitory. Um, and look, maybe it is, but with every day it isn't, that mindset Sam Zell talked about gets more and more entrenched. Um, the only place it doesn't seem to be entrenched right now is in Wall Street. Uh, and, and look, Wall Street has a history of believing they're smarter than everybody else. And in many cases they have been, but, but every now and again, they're just a little bit too smart for their own good. So if, if, you, if you look around and, and what Luke just described transpires, then... Yeah, you know, there's 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 barely an equity market in the world that isn't overpriced by multiples. 
um, there isn't a, a bond market in the world that isn't in a similar situation. That correlation is going to be incredibly tight on the way down, and that's going to be painful for an awful lot of people. Um, the resource sector is undervalued. You know what, what, what we're seeing the, the 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 stresses in the oil market. We're seeing it in the natural gas market. You know, in the UK, we're going back to the 1970s and talking about you know blackouts and three day weeks and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I'm just just young enough to not really remember that as as a, as a sentient being. But um, but if you think about it in broad terms, if you think about us having had 40 years of a deflationary environment and, and a, a tailwind of falling rates. And you, you, know, you look at a chart of rates and you'll see from 1981 to 2021, we've had 40 years of declining rates. It's, a, it's as, as perfect a, a chart as you'll find. Um, if you think about what that's meant for multiples, which have expanded, equity markets, which have gone to all-time highs, bond markets, we've got 13 trillion now down from 17 and a half of negative yielding uh, bonds on our hands. If you reverse that environment, if you if you take away that deflationary tailwind and you turn it to an inflationary headwind, then it stands to reason that all the assets that have performed well over that period are also going to reverse. You are going to see uh, equities doing things that they did between 1968 and 1982, which is to head towards being five times earnings with a with a five percent six percent dividend yield. You know, which is a world away from where we are now. You're going to see bond markets trying, uh, they can't be allowed to go there, but they are going to be trying to go to double digit yields. You know, I, I just finished an interview with Paul Isaac, um, who was talking about trading Ford motor credits, trading uh, on, with 30% interest um, in the 70s. And, and people think, well, that can't happen today. Um, but the impulse that the market is going to send is absolutely going to be to send those assets to those valuations. Um, Luke's laid out again, brilliantly exactly why that can't be allowed to happen and, and it's it's up in the air as to what means will be enforced to stop it happening but the equity market is not so important as the bond market um, in terms of trying to pick which problems you solve um, so I think uh, I think overvalued equity markets are are going to be hugely problematic for people and I think we're seeing a topping process if you look at the S&P um, and you look what's happening recently, look at the de deterioration in breadth. We are seeing something that looks very much like a topping process to me. Um, and I think if, you're, if your bet is the market hits a series of meaningful new highs from here, I think you're a much braver man than me. Um, so I, I think the easiest rule of thumb for this is if you believe that deflation turns to inflation, then you need to take the other side of all the things that have worked over the last 40 years. That's a very simple rule of thumb, but it's, I think it'll turn out to be remarkably effective. Equities down, bonds down, commodities up, gold up big. I suspect Bitcoin, if it can get through the speculative phase of this when everyone's panicking, um, Bitcoin will do well. Uh, the housing market obviously is a tricky one simply because rates are going to want to go higher. So again, Real estate isn't priced for much. It isn't priced for higher rates, so that's that's a much trickier one. But uh, that that's the the broad brushstrokes to me, and I think it's a fairly simple framework to think about all this in. Green, you just mentioned Bitcoin there. One thing that I always I just don't know how to think about. This I should mentality. never have dangled the hook in the pond, should I? I'm so, you know Grant, you know Grant. <laughs> okay, Grant. All right, I got to do this now. So I wasn't going to do this until the end, but I listened to this interview that the two of you did a little over a year ago. And uh, again, Preston Pish did this one. It's a great, uh, great interview. 
Now you're talking about Bitcoin back then, and um, you know you were speculating it could go as high as something like twenty thousand uh, by the end of the year, but that was like too much to talk about. And uh, and Grant, your your words back then were, um, you know, if it really did something more meaningful than that, then I might reconsider my my position on it. What what's your honest framework for looking at this whole space? Because as we're talking about this, doing, I got to be honest. I want to check my emotions. People in the YouTube comments tell me when I'm getting too emotional. But like, I, I am I constantly in between this. Like, I think things are kind of falling apart. But I'm so excited yeah. about this industry. So where do you come down on it now? I'm just I'm just curious. You know, I I spoke to I spoke to my friend Tony Dean about this earlier this year, mm-hmm. and and he put it beautifully. He, he said, "Look, I, I hope everybody in Bitcoin gets extremely rich. It just isn't for me." Uh, you know, he's got other things that he's focused on. There are other things that he understands better. There's other things that he he sees fit his risk parameters much better. And it's the same for me. I'm I'm outgunned intellectually on Bitcoin by all these people that spend their lives immersed in it, and I and I absolutely understand that. Um, for me, I uh, I understand the promise of Bitcoin. I think any any gold guy understands what Bitcoin offers, right? I think I think we understand. The alternates, the alternatives it offers to the status quo, and 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 they're hugely important. But you know, I I just have for me, I have too many questions that I can't get answers to make me comfortable enough to to decide to commit the kind of time I would feel I had to put into this to understand it to a level where I was, uh, you know, on on, a, on the level playing field with the with the people who are in it. I, I, there are just too many questions for me. So, you know, to echo Tony Deaton, I, I, I hope everybody makes a fortune out of it. But uh, I suspect if, if similar uh, price charts of assets are, hold true here, then a lot of people will lose an awful lot of money. Some people will get very rich. I hope everybody gets out the top. But for me, um, I just can't get comfortable with having any meaningful allocation to it, to be honest. Which I complete, and I heard that in the Sam Zell interview that you did as well. And I completely respect that, that point of view. Um, Grant or uh, Luke, sorry. Uh, I guess just closing thoughts here. As a guy who likes gold and Bitcoin together, how do you see those two assets playing out? Let's let's say that it, it, there is some sort of inflationary spiral, negative real rates for a sustained period of time. I guess one thing that I always struggle with is I see Bitcoin as a risk asset, but it also has this narrative and story around being a store of value and a hedge against those things. So, how do you weigh your kind of, you know, deciding to be in gold versus Bitcoin, and, and how do you kind of sur- square those two uh, incompatible? views so i think they both address i think they are both good ways or at the sort of the top of the pyramid i guess if you will if you look upside down exters pyramid right which is you know at the top of the pyramid i think they are in terms of ways to hedge significantly negative real interest rates or financial repression and i think i think Gold has a much higher beta, uh, as we've seen, I think, de facto. I think gold, once you understand the means by which policymakers have constrained the rise in gold uh, with the expansion, the nearly infinite expansion of of paper gold derivatives uh, via unallocated promises, futures, etc., and you realize how this, how the structure of Bitcoin prevents, in in a real way, the creation of paper alternatives to 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 pull flows from Bitcoin. That to me, I think, is both gives it greater upside, but also gives it sort of that greater beta. I mean, it's to me, I think Bitcoin is probably the last true market um, that we see. Um, I think Bitcoin's also really interesting because 
I think it will also ultimately force gold to do what it should have been doing all along and pull it alongside with it if it doesn't do it in its own right. What I mean by that is I think Bitcoin's going to do what it's going to do in response to what I think is a highly likely to be significantly negative real interest rates for all the reasons we talked about before. And as Bitcoin does that, it's going to, I don't know what the price is, what the threshold is in terms of market cap, if you will. Um, but at some point, central banks are going to need to make a decision where either this ecosystem is going to kind of go off and do its own thing and get big enough. And once it gets big enough, um, then, then gold, the central bankers are sort of going to be replaced by this, this autonomous system is going to be the risk, right? This, this self-governing system. And so I, it's something I think a, a lot of the Bitcoin maxis, if you will, as they're called, miss is if the system, if the status quo system is ever going to de- feels like it wants to defend itself against Bitcoin, they can ban it and they can tax, they can do all these things to it. Some of them might actually work a little bit to slow it down, but I don't think they're going to stop it. If they ever really want to defend the status quo system, they're going to have to let gold go. And when I say let it go, I don't mean 1,700 to 2,000 or to 2,500 or even to 3,000. They're going to need to like add a zero to the end of gold or maybe two zeros to the end of gold. And they're going to need to wipe out the paper derivative markets to or at least rein them in to a significant extent before they do. And what's interesting when I say that is, is if you look at the Basel III net stable funding ratio moves that already went live in Europe and the U.S. and are supposed to go live in some measure in four months in the U.K., they look an awful lot like the system, for whatever reason, deciding to rein in the paper gold markets that they have been central bankers' best friends for 35 years. And just now they're deciding to rein these things in as we head towards this seeming highly likely period of of significant negative real interest rates and rising inflation and the need to inflate away this debt. So I I look at them to answer the question as in my own portfolio as yeah two ideal the two best ways to deal with increasingly negative real interest rates with Bitcoin having more beta and being sort of this pure read, you know, not having the derivative attached to it with gold being sort of the lower beta, same direction, but with sort of a call option almost where if the system ever decides it wants to defend itself, I mean, truly defend itself against Bitcoin, they're going to have to let gold go. All right, guys, um, I've, I've kept you for long enough. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I feel like we covered a lot of I could have literally I've got way more questions for you, but uh, I'll, I'll let you go and not keep you captive for too long. If folks want to find out more about you, uh, Grant and Luke, what's the best way to do that, guys? Uh, it means easy. Just go to grant-williams.com and you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Nice and simple. I'm uh, FFTT-LLC.com and at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N on Twitter. I guess I should have added uh, on the very slim off chance that anyone didn't know who you were before <laughs> before this interview. Um, but uh, guys, this has been so much fun for me. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, and when, when we have a, an eight-hour block, uh, maybe we can sit down and actually do this conversation justice. <laughs> Sometime in the future. There you go. But, uh, thanks, Michael. You, you, right. You're doing a great job. Really, really thank enjoyed listening to you. Thanks a lot for having us on. Yeah, thanks. thank you very much for having us on, Michael.